You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. If I had to use one word to describe Tony Brooks, it would be contrarian. And that's because my definition of the word contrarian is someone who looks at the world through an unfiltered lens. Contrarians usually have opinions that cut through politics and personal agendas and that come from the heart. Contrarians are not always interested in achieving a consensus and are never afraid to rock the boat. They're more interested in getting to the heart of any matter and uncovering the truth and finding solutions that work. In my opinion, Tony Brooks is entitled to be called a contrarian for two reasons. First, he's a master of his craft. When it comes to golf, he speaks from authority. And secondly, he cares deeply about the game and how he uses his craft to benefit other people's lives. And we're not talking about lowering handicaps. So here's an example of that. The name of Tony's company, Golf of Life First, Inc. The first letters of each word form an acronym, G-O-L-F, golf. But before we talk to Tony, here's a quick biographical snapshot. Tony grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa as a third-generation golfer. He's played the game since he was five years old and remembers how he was treated as a junior golfer. Based on that experience, which doesn't sound like it was positive, he has dedicated his career to ensuring the growth of the game through junior golf. And toward that end, for the past 13 years, Tony's been the owner of Lion Junior Golf Academy in Diamond Bar, California, which is located east of Los Angeles. Prior to that, Tony worked as a golf professional at a number of California golf facilities, including the famed Riviera Country Club in Pacific Palisades, Mission Viejo Country Club, and Black Gold Golf Club in Yorba Linda. He also served as a director of instruction for the PGA Tour. You should also know that Tony is one of around 375 master professionals in the country, which represents less than 1% of the current PGA membership. The PGA of America created the Master Professionals Program in 1969 for PGA members who wanted to pursue the highest level of golf education possible. And Tony's specialty for his master's program was teaching and instruction. Tony also has a long list of other professional certifications or recognitions, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to mention them here, other than to note that last year, Tony was a recipient of the Golf Range Association of America's Top 50 in the U.S. Growth of the Game Awards. So, Tony, what you're doing appears to be working, and welcome to Golf Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. That sounded more like a eulogy than, than anything, <laughs> but I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Well, now you're ready. If you die tomorrow, you can just, I'll just send it to your wife. That's right. Save me some time. So, listen, I know you have a lot of opinions on things because I follow you closely on LinkedIn, and we'll talk about that. But before we go down that road, I was wondering if you could fill in any of the details on your backstory that I may have missed on your journey from South Africa to Lion Golf Academy. Uh, No, you you pretty much hit on the head. I used to, when I was a child, I wanted to just hang out with my dad, and he played a lot of golf, so that's where I got into the game. 
And when I was four or five years old, he cut down an old persimmon three wood and said, here you go, come have some fun with me. And the rest is history. I just remember the smell of the grass in the morning and just hanging out with my dad. And that's kind of what I wanted to give to the next generation and all these other generations that we're in touch with. One reason I say I remember growing up around golf as a youth is because I just wasn't given the opportunities that are around now for the kids. Uh, you know, we weren't even allowed in the, the pro shop or on the golf course on certain days and certain times. So it's just, it's changed a lot. So that's basically what I wanted to get across is uh, it wasn't so negative as a child. It was actually very positive. But what I do remember being negative is the way that kids were treated on the golf course. And I still see that today. Uh, a lot of the kids are looked down upon and kind of want to change that, that stigma. Yeah. Did you caddy when you were a kid? I did. I used to caddy a lot for my dad. I mean, that was the one guy I used to love caddying for. Uh, and obviously, like fathers and sons, we'd go at it. and <laughs> We'd butt heads over at different clubs, but it was just a great experience for me. And then later on in my life, I caddied uh, professionally for about four years. And that's like one of the most underappreciated jobs. It's just incredibly tough. You caddied on the PGA Tour or on? No, no. I caddied at Riviera. I when I was a pro at Riviera, I was there for about five years. And then I went to Colorado and just kind of got away from L.A. and then pursued my playing career. And then I lasted there about four or five years and came back to L.A. without a job. And Todd Yoshitaku, who was the head professional at the time, a really good friend of mine and a mentor of mine, decided, you know, hey, just come on. Stay as long as you need to get a job, get a foot in the door. And I planned on staying there for a few months. And that turned into four to five years. It was just such a great life. It allowed me to be around great people kept me in shape, allowed me to play golf. But then, you know, years and years of caddying, your knees start buckling in. I was reaching an age where I just couldn't do it anymore. So unfortunately, I had to leave. But fortunately for me, it opened more doors. How'd you get from South Africa? I know you're going to say a plane, but how did you make that journey? It's a long row, a long rowboat. My dad was in the music business and he did such a great job for EMI Records that they had a subsidiary company called APM, Associated Production Music, and they were going to open up two new places. It's either Los Angeles or Manchester in England. So being a kid, he kind of let us decide where we wanted to go. I'm pretty sure he had his ideas, and I'm pretty sure he swayed us because he showed us a, a tourist book of Manchester, and you know, it's all it's gray and nothing. Then he showed us a tourist book of L.A. and his Disneyland and the beach, and of course, we're going to choose that. So I think it was guided, but... It was a good thing that he let us think we chose it. How old were you at that time? I was 12. Okay. Okay. Now, you told a story, I read it somewhere, that, that your dad said something about predicting the future that also applies to golf. Can you tell that story? Yeah, he was approached by somebody prior to YouTube. This was probably the late 90s, early 2000s, and this was right when computers were excelling and the internet connections were excelling. The old dial-up 56K modems, you know, couldn't handle what they could handle now. And so this person approached him and said, hey, would you be interested in investing in this company that does online streaming of music? And obviously my dad being his generation and his time and, you know, he was not ego driven, but he says, you know, this isn't the music world is not ready for this. The people still would like to go and venture into the store and thumb through the records and find the record that they wanted. It's like a journey. And boy, was he wrong. And that opened my eyes because I really looked up to my dad and his position that he was in. And I was saying, if this guy got it wrong, you know, people in any industry can get it wrong. And especially if you don't have the hindsight and, you know, 
I'm not saying my dad didn't have the hindsight, but you just have to start looking at the way the evolution of society is going. And I feel the golf business is still kind of like my dad's mentality is they think that, oh, you know, this will go. It's a fad. It will come and go. It's no problem. We'll just wait it out. And it's unfortunately, it's not happening. I mean, companies like Top Golf are coming up and Next Links are coming up. And these are companies that are meeting the need of the people. And the people can no longer afford the time or afford the money as they used to. And I used to think about that. I used to say, well, that sounds to me like an excuse. Because if I said I don't have the time for something, that's not true. Because I see a lot of people wasting many minutes of their mornings standing in a Starbucks line or in in and out burger line. And that's, I can just go to McDonald's down the street and get it much quicker. But I would prefer to wait for something I want. I would prefer to pay two or three times the amount of coffee that the McDonald's offers me as well. So I used to think that was just an excuse. But now being a part of this society where, you know, we're struggling for money, a lot of my friends are struggling for money, and it's no longer a one person can work while somebody else stays at home. So it's, you know, the golf business has to wake up and few are. And those few that are waking up will be the ones that stay in business and make make a living for themselves. Yeah. You know, I lead a lot of conflicting reports about what's happening or the health of the, the golf industry, however that's defined. I read, you know, very dismal reports saying, you know, it's clubs are closing and people don't have time and interest. And then I read other reports that say, you know, that's those were overblown and, you know, it's going through resurgence. I mean, do you, what do you see happening? You know, it's I, I've thought a lot about this and I know it has a lot to do with the Tiger boom. You know, when Tiger was very popular in the late 90s, early 2000s, and the market was good, everyone could support the market. Golf companies and associations started building golf courses left, right, and center, and the market could support it. Uh, I think it has to do with a little bit of the the decline in the market, the status change, the, you know, the next generation will change. It could be pointing fingers a lot of ways. Some say millennials don't help out, but I say that they're definitely the future of golf. And we have to figure out a way of how they think and how they work and what pleases them. So I think it's just everything together adds up to what's going on. A lack of good leadership at country clubs. I see a lot of golf courses that could have and should have survived are closed. And you wonder why. I mean, they're in such a great location. And then I noticed that most of the golf course closures are the ones that used to be the middle ones, like the $75 to $125 golf course. Those are the ones that are closing because, like society, that's where it's going. I think golf is a big predictor of society, and that represents the middle class. And the middle class is getting shrunk on either side. And the same thing with golf courses. I mean, the golf courses that are thriving, Diamond Bar Golf Course, I mean, it's incredibly busy. And that's, you know, $30, $40 around. And then you have the exclusive clubs that are also thriving too because people can just go to one or the other so it's a riding of the ship it's you know things are happening for a reason staying out in front and figuring out a way to save jobs and create jobs is what my goal is and i'm sure a lot of the people in the industry see that can the pga or the usga do anything about that or just the economic and demographic forces just have to kind of play out you know, I'm sure you can stay. I know you've been a, both a, you seem to have a love-hate relationship with the PGA and, you, and you've outspoken about things that they do from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's to say the very least, that's very true. I, I would say I absolutely love the PGA for what it represents and for the men and women who dedicate their lives to fly that logo. And it just takes a lot of work and a lot of ethic and a lot of dedication, not only by that person, but the surrounding family, because 
honestly, those people don't really make that much money. We do it out of the love. So that I'm very proud of. And it's one of my biggest accomplishments, not to become a PGA member, but also do the certified process and then a master's professional and now as a legacy professional. So I'm always trying to play their game and show that, hey, look, I, I reached to the top of your pinnacle. So what can you offer me now? The sad answer is there's not much. So I think that things need to change on both ends of the field, but more so the leaders. I mean, the, and I see them trying. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say they're horrible at everything. They're definitely trying, but I don't know if they have like the right idea of what should happen. And, you know, they could have easily beaten top golf to the game. They could have easily beaten companies like Netflix to the game, but they didn't. And I don't know why they just didn't have the, the foresight to see what's going on. And that could just be that they're stuck in the traditionalism way. And I've mentioned this many times, and it starts from the simplest things like the dress code. I mean, if I go to the education center over there, I feel like I'm stepping back in the 1940s and 50s, and I just feel very uncomfortable. And that is a person that has reached the highest level of their curriculum. I can't imagine what the average Joe must think about us. You know, they look at us like we're just like starched cardboard people walking around stuck up in our, in our world. And I can see why it's hard to grow the game of golf when you have uh, leadership like that. And I'm probably going to get in a bunch of trouble, but I just understand <laughs> what I need to say. <laughs> okay. So what's the difference between a master professional and a legacy professional? You just mentioned legacy. A master professional, it's the highest achievement that you can get. Legacy is, an, is a volunteer. There's not, no real extra work you have to do, but you volunteer to serve on like a committee that will help a certified professional who wishes to become a master professional. So they would like assign me two or three people that are trying to pursue their masters and I will help guide them, kind of just show them what needs to be expected of them. And then I fly down with them, stay with them for the two or three days while they present their thesis and then do their teaching in front of us. And then we just kind of go over, do we think that they have reached their pinnacle to get to the full star status? Okay. So one of the things, Tony, that you've written about on LinkedIn is the devaluation of your craft and specifically, you know, offering free advice and accepting Groupon for services. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I used to be that pro that would try and discount. I would try and attract people to say, oh, I'm going to get such a great deal by going to this person. But then I started to realize that I'm just discounting myself and do I really deserve that? And I've taken some time to get my knowledge. Do I really deserve to discount my knowledge? And usually when you offer stuff for free, when I see like, come in, you know, come test drive this car and get a free, whatever, a free beach ball. I'm going to think to myself, a free, you know, what value is that free? It's probably some garbage beach ball that I don't even want anyway. So when I give a free 15 minute tip, I mean, what value does that say on the person? It's, it's just, it's this perception issue. And then you start attracting people that always want discounts, that always want free, that are non-loyal to you. And it's very easy to see them jump ship. And a prime example of this is like golfgolfnow.com. If I want a tee time for tomorrow and I have $20 in my pocket, I'm going to find a tee time that is $20 worth. Whether or not that $20 golf course is better or worse, it's $20. So let's say the next day I want to go play golf again. And I look it up and I go, oh, wait a minute, there's a golf course right down the street for 18. I'm going to go to that one. I'm not going to go to the 20. Why do I go to 20? So the, you find these people price warring each other and they're just, there's non-loyal people jumping around and it's hard to develop some sort of clientele. So I found it harder to turn down people because 
my price point is set to attract a certain clientele, and I understand that now. So I don't have a problem turning people away, and it's not an ego thing. It's something that I need to have. I need to make X amount of dollars to support myself, my family, my instructors, my rent, my bills, all that stuff. I need that amount of money. I can't start discounting that because then all of a sudden I lower everything and I become overworked because I have to fill up instead of doing 10 lessons a week or 10 classes a week, I have to do 15 a week to make up. And now all of a sudden I become overworked. My quality goes down. The quality of students go down. There's nobody really committed to the process and they can easily come in and out. So everything goes down. So there is some sort of standards that I held accountable to myself, my instructors, and also my students. And if you want to work with us, you have to have that same sort of mindset. And it might be harder to find those people, but once you find them, your cost of customer acquisition decreases because now you don't have to go and find more students to replace the ones that are not loyal. So it might be harder to start with, but you have to have some sort of standard to keep things rolling and grow. And that's the slow growth. And maybe that's part of the thing that got golf course down is they lost control of their T-sheets from companies like Golf Now. You know, Golf Now takes control of the T-sheets. I don't know how it works now, but when I was in the industry, they take control of the T-sheets. They charge X amount to fill your, your slots. But now all of a sudden, yeah, you've made some quick money, but now you've attracted those people that might not care as much about your golf course, that might not replace the divots, that might not fix pitch marks on the green. Then that all that stuff wears down your golf course and wears down your carts. Your carts have already gone out another round and they've lost their cart average that they should be uh, coming in. Your food and beverage is not supported, so maybe that could do it as well. And then what happens when they price the fees up? Those non-loyal people say, forget it, I'm going somewhere else. Yeah, I think very few golfers really understand the complexities of the economics involved in the business and that the margins are really pretty thin, you know, and the, the things you mentioned are really important. Right. So. Switching gears a little bit, do you have a point of view on online instruction? You see a lot of, you know, you can subscribe to different programs where they have different teachers covering the whole, every aspect of the game. Do you have a point of view on that versus in-person instruction? Is there any place for online instruction? Does that also devalue the game? You know, that's, I've thought about this, and I think online instruction, there's definitely a place for it. I know that. Some of my students, when they go and travel, we have to keep in contact with each other. And they might travel for two or three months because most of my kids go back to China for the summer. So I won't see them for a while. So we might try and slot in like a Skype lesson or communicate via text. And they send me some videos of them and I reply back. So absolutely, I think there is a need for it. Is there a business market for it? It could possibly be. I just don't know. Again, it's how do you get that person to be loyal to you? And what makes them want to go through an online session? Or is it just a one-time deal? Are they looking to establish a five-year relationship with you? And can that suffice online? I just don't know. I don't think there's been enough involved in it. So I think it might be a great complimentary thing for an academy or an established instructor to use for their students. I just don't know if it's possible to create a business in this day and age with so many options. How do you separate yourself? And you probably have to do some sort of price war again. And are you big enough to support the price war? I mean, if you're Callaway and you're offering this and you have a division for this and you can support the loss, then, yeah, you can do something and that might attract more customers. But if you're, you know, Joe Smith, public PGA pro and you're trying to do this, I don't know if it's possible. I just don't know if you're you can get your name out there big enough to do so. 
Yeah. What I was thinking of, though, there are subscription models where you essentially you pay to have access to a library of, you know, 100 different videos that covering, you know, bunker shots and putting and driving. There's no personalization. Does that hurt the game? Is that, you know, it, it hurt the game. I don't know if it hurts the game. Does it hurt the growth of the game? Possibly, because now you're just going for online tips. It's like me going to a YouTube and trying to learn how to play guitar, I can do it. There's no personalization, like you said. So yes, it can be done. It might help, but you know, guitar is basically a defined area with six strings, and I play chords. I need to know how to strum. Golf is a little bit different. I mean, golf is a major take. I mean, not only do you have to learn the, the physics of the, the swing, the mechanics, you have to learn how to apply those mechanics on the golf course. You have to know about golf course management, and I'm sure there's thousands and thousands of videos. And I'm sure some might work for some people, but that is one of the reasons why I stopped doing articles for magazines is because I just felt like I was doing disservice to people by offering them these tips that probably won't work for them because we're so individual. And it's up to that individual person to work with an individual instructor to figure out what works for them. It's uh, probably both, but I would personally, I don't think it would help. At one point in your career, early on, you toyed with going on the PGA Tour, is that correct? Yes. thought about it twice. The first time was just a pipe dream. Was a had no idea how good those people were and just got reality slapped in my face within like the first month. And I just came back with my tail between my legs and then decided to pursue the membership of the PGA. And then I got my first head professional job at Black Gold. And then in the mid to late 2000s, that's when I decided to go back to Colorado and I just Try to reinvent my life. I needed to take some time. The golf world kind of ate me alive. I was working 60, 70 hours a week, not making much, and I had lost a lot in my life. I kind of turned my back on my family because I was just working, 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 most of my friends. So I, was, I felt myself pretty alone, and I decided, you know, I need to go reset my life. I need to get away from this for a bit. So I went to Colorado. I wanted no responsibility. I just wanted a job where I would open the shop and be able to hit golf balls. And I found that job, and it was a, a great time for me to kind of the the construct I guess I'm looking for and just hit golf balls and work and work and work out and do stuff that I can get to be a better golfer and I actually became pretty good so I decided to do it again and I was fortunate enough to land a sponsorship through somebody at the club I was working with and they offered me 50000 to just go and play for a year so that was my next venture and I loved every minute of it and unfortunately at the very end of it he had to withdraw whatever funds he had left because the economic crisis hit and he couldn't justify spending whatever we had left to support me when he had to lay off employees. So I totally understood, but it was a great experience for me. I'll never uh, regret doing that. Uh, and that's what brought me back to L.A. and then restarted everything up and then I just kept going. Now, what tour was that on? Was that on one of the uh, the lesser tours? Not the lesser tour. They've changed names so many times. I'm... Yeah, it's well. I was I took my car and I went all the way to Florida. So I was down in that that southeast area and Alabama's, Georgia's, and that's where most of the golfers go, and that's where you know most of the good golfers go that are trying to play. So I just wanted to go and, and tee it up with them. So I would chase. I'd drive a week early, try and chase, and uh, nothing ever evolved. I became more mentally unstable to play tournament golf. I would be a really good golfer by myself and with my friends and on the range, but as soon as it put some sort of pressure on me, I would just collapse. And, you know, it's such a mental game. that it, That's where I really learned that mentality is, is such a strong point. And I feel like now I'm a stronger mental player, but obviously 10 years ago I was much stronger physically. So 
I would love to try it again, but I just don't have, <laughs> I don't have the body anymore. <laughs> I don't know if my wife will let me too. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you apparently know a lot of guys on the PGA tour because you played with a lot of them, both current and past professionals. And you also mentioned, you've mentioned your experience with Lee Trevino. Can you talk about that a little bit? That to me was looking back, it was like the, the most unbelievable thing that happened to myself and my dad. And unfortunately I was kind of young. I was 18 at the time. And I didn't really know, really know who Lee was or his backstory. So that was unfortunate that at that time I couldn't appreciate it more than I do now. And the reason why I love Lee Trevino now is just because of who he represented. You know, he was a working man's pro. And that great story about him and Raymond Floyd, when Raymond Floyd went up to go and play with this kid somewhere in Texas and he got out and Lee Trevino was the one that opened his car door and valeted the car. (laughs) And then he went to go and (laughs) closed the shop and teed up with him and beat Raymond Floyd and Raymond wanted to rematch. He says, sorry, Raymond, I got to go close the shop and put the carts away. So to me, that was like, <laughs> that was the guy I wanted to emulate because he was the working man's pro. But the reason why it made it special is because it was, A, it was with my dad. And B, I could see how much that person meant to my dad because I remember watching the old British Opens in the, in the early 80s and looking at, you know, watching the, and the names and you hear Jack Nicholas and you hear Tom Watson and Lee Trevino and Gary Player. And then to... My dad, his eyes would like light up when he would see Lee Trevino hit a golf ball. And he would talk to Lee Trevino and say, hey, remember that time in, in the 75 British Open when you hit it out the rough? And, and then Lee Trevino's eyes would open and say, hey, somebody actually remembers that. So it was really cool for me to watch these two go and talk to each other that never knew each other, probably should not have known each other, but they found a way through golf and to connect at that level. And that really made me aware of the power of the game, that it can join anybody. It doesn't matter how rich, how old, how weak, how young, what nationality you are, you can all connect. And I've been very fortunate to rub shoulders with people that I had no business with rubbing shoulders just because I could hit a golf ball. And that's the beauty about the game. And that's what I try to teach my kids at the academy. It's like golf will do wonders for you if you just let it take you there. Yeah. So one of the, uh, I thought it was funny, maybe maybe you were, I'm sure you were serious about it, but you have applied for membership in the LPGA. Yeah. Can you tell that story? I don't know how it's been resolved or if it's still ongoing. I applied probably 10 years ago and I reached out via email and I never heard anything back. And then I tried it again. And this was probably six, seven months ago. And uh, I actually heard back from a person at the LPGA. I won't say anybody's names, but then we sat down and we actually talked for a good hour. And it was a great talk. I see that they're trying to do a lot in their game, but I wanted to become the first male full-fledged LPGA member. And one of the reasons was, is I thought to myself, well, here's an association that is really trying to promote the game of golf and show that anybody can do this. Uh, but yet you can only be a woman. And I thought that that's kind of contradictory that they wanted to be inclusive, but not include. And I think it was the merging of the PGA and LPGA would do wonders for and us because you know, as a PJ member, a male and woman can become a member of the PJ. But I understand why they were formed in the 50s, and I get it. And I think it's a great thing that they were formed, but this is not the 50s anymore. And how can we move forward if we still remind ourselves that there's a, you have to be a male to join something? I just think that it's, we're past that. We should be beyond this. And, you know, a good example of is I actually had my students, and what triggered this all over again, is I, we give our students weekly assignments every week to do a page report and they can come back and they earn points. And one of those 
research papers was to research the LPGA. And one of my students, he's 15 years old. He asked me, he says, hey, what if I want to become a member of the LPGA? And I looked at him and I said, you know what? You probably can't. And he looked a little disappointed. He goes, why? That's not fair. I says, well, I'm, I guess you're right. So that kind of started this whole thing off with me and them. And it left off with them saying that, you know, they're, they're going to take it higher up the chain and they'll get back to me. But they would appreciate anything that we can do, any support I can give them. And they would also allow me to do the work, but not give me the membership. So I said, you know, that, that's nice, but I don't think that's the point here. Not the knowledge I want. It's the actual recognition to show that golf is growing. And how can you grow when you still have these associations that decline half the population? So we kind of left like that, and I haven't heard back from them. And I don't think I will. Yeah, they're kind of hoping you, you go away, right? That's right, yeah. It was a nice like pat on the back, go away. So here you are, one of uh, the top 1% of teaching pros in the United States, and you've decided rather than to teach you know, rich white guys that you're going to focus your business and career on kids and families. What led to that? I mean, that's an important decision. I mean, that's something that, you know, that's critical to who you are. And I'm curious to know what, why you're there and why you stay there. I think it was a, a combination of a bunch of things. Number one, adults are pretty needy and they're very, like, how do I say this? They're very theoretical. You, you tell them something and they'll just mull over it. And there's questions over every swing. And it just got to the point where it's like, man, I don't feel like being like a shrink. I don't want to be, I'm a golf pro. I just want to help you play better golf. And with the kids, you know, they're a lot more free. They're more fun. It makes time go much faster. I'm growing the game at a 30-fold. I mean, what am I going to do for the quote-unquote rich white guy that nobody else can do? I mean, any other golf pro can go teach them, and that's fine, but to make connections with kids, to help grow the game that we're doing. I mean, we're probably dealing with 75 to 100 students every year that turn over and we're affecting their families too. And a lot of these families don't play golf, that they just want their kids to get involved. And then by the end of the year, some of the families are out there playing golf. So I think just the amount of security that we're able to give myself, my family, my instructors, you know, that that one single rich white guy might not be able to support the whole entire academy the kids will and the families will. And again, it's that process of choosing the right family that's ready to commit and not just a family to try stuff. I mean, we're I'm more than happy to refer them to like the first tier organizations that can help them start if they want to just try stuff. But we're after the families that want to stick with it for a while and give it deserving experience and needs. So that's the reason why I decided to work with kids. A, because it's more fun and B, because uh, we actually provide more job security. Yeah. So you've been... Uh critical in the past, Tony, about, not a lot, but I've read some things you've written about the educational system. I'm not talking about golf. I'm talking about schools and the shortcomings, uh, you know, and you've mentioned, you know, it fosters regurgitation versus wisdom. Can you talk a little bit about that? Let me first clarify. I'm not the, <laughs> I'm not claiming that I am the king of education. I'm like, I'm far from it. I graduated high school with like a 2.1 GPA. i dropped out of college, so I'm not the one that's getting the straight A's. But No, but you're in the education business, yeah, and, and, you, and you're in touch with kids every day. So you, yeah. you probably know more about learning you know, than a lot of teachers. You know? you know, I kind of agree with that, and it's about finding you know, what makes a student tick. And the, I guess the reason why I, quote-unquote, failed in my education journey is because I was more of a, a, 
like a daydream. Nobody could really get my interest. And it wasn't that I wasn't able to do the work. I mean, I was able to do it, but I just didn't choose to because it wasn't my joy. I just didn't find any fun in it. One person reached out to me and was able to get me excited. It was my art teacher in 11th grade. And he talked to me differently and he treated me differently. And it actually made me excited to want to go to this class and learn. So I knew that there was other ways to do stuff. And I see it all the time with my students. They are so overworked and they don't have any days off for themselves. They don't have any time off. Their schedule is so packed. And some of them don't even want to be in the golf class. So that's why I try and make it as fun as I can so they at least have something to look forward to. I try and create a trust that's not there with Sometimes they trust me more than their parents, and I'm not trying to do that on purpose, but it just happens. And it's kind of a shame because they can rattle off all these statistics. They just don't. That's all they can do. I mean, they experience in life, and I'm afraid for these kids when they get out in life. And they're straight-A students, and they're overworked, and they they look like they've got this great diploma. But once life hands them a bunch of losses, what's going to happen to them? You know, so that's, that's all I'm afraid of, and that's why I'm critical of the industry is wisdom is different than regurgitation. And that's basically what it comes down to. I can study for a test and regurgitate it, get an A, get a diploma, go to the best schools, regurgitate everything, get get the highest honors, but then have I really gained wisdom? And that's debatable. One of the things you've said is uh, that you say, and I'm interested to know how you communicate this to students, you say, or one of your mantras is, there are no such things as excuses. What do you mean by that? You know, I credit this one to Dr. Tim Somerville, in uh, professional golf and career college and uh, I went there and I was not a very good student. I think I was coming off of my high school kind of in the college age and I just wasn't having it. You know, I was not a very good student and he was literally about five minutes from kicking me out of the whole academy and and he pulled me in his office and he says, you know what, what's wrong with you? I mean, what are you going to do if I kick you out of this class? Where are you going to go? You have no job, no education, nothing. What are you going to do? And then he gave this whole lecture about no excuses because everything's an excuse. If you don't do your homework, there's an excuse. If you don't, if you're late for class, there's an excuse. He goes, there's no such thing as excuses. You are in control of your destiny. Whatever you do, wherever you go, you are the one that's making your life. So I don't want to hear anything about excuses. And that is like that moment. Nobody's really spoken that way and really instilled something in me that I literally flipped a switch. And I became completely like literally that second I flipped the switch. I was like, oh, my God, this guy's completely correct. And it just changed my life. And I became all of a sudden, like I see people that I went to that college with 20 years ago, and they don't believe it's me because they would have looked at me and said, that guy's going to be under a bridge. <laughs> He's not going to be. And here I am with the complete opposite. And I credit it to him. Obviously, I don't want to take anything away from my parents or my family at that time. But just the way he said that to me. And it stayed in my brain, and it's always been there. Do you, have, do you find students giving excuses, and do you try to, is that something you try to impart to them? Absolutely, and it's almost every day there's a student that blames something else. I'm pretty, I've, I've, the more I'm around them, the less tolerance I have, and they know right away. It's funny, because we have a new student that will come up with an excuse, and the other three students in the class will kind of look away and go, oh, my goodness, here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> like they've been there. <laughs> That's funny. So in one of the other terms that you use, you call them dot days in terms of uh, living one's life. What are dot days? Dot days, I'll give you a good example. I, when I was cutting a Riviera when I, was, when I came back to L.A., it was about 2009, maybe 2010, 
And I had a rough night the one night before, you know, living the caddy life, quick money. And I remember it was a Sunday morning and it was about 5.30 the alarm went off because the draw is at 6.30 and the draw is basically determines what ranking you go on that morning. And I think it was a holiday. I can't remember. But I just remember hitting the alarm and saying, no, forget it. I'm just too tired. And then something inside my brain said, you know, just go there. You don't know what's going to happen. So I got up. I went to the, the shack and nobody was in line. So I was automatically first up. So I waited down there and I probably waited for about three hours. And this, and I got a call from the top and they said, uh, hey, we have a one putter for you. And I thought to myself, one putter? And I woke up all this time for one putter. So I asked the guy, and I said, is there anything else? He goes, on the books, no, but you can wait as long as you want. So I said, fine, I'll take this one putter. So I go with this guy, one putter. And usually a one putter job gets you $50 plus tips. So we fly around. We play in two and a half hours, and he gives me a couple hundred bucks. I said, oh, that's great. That's awesome. So then I, a week goes by again. Same deal. I get up. I think I drew number three or four that weekend. But then that one putter job requested me. Next, you know, get up there, do the same thing, hour and a half couple hundred bucks again and this went on for about three or four times and then finally he looked at me and says hey you want to be my regular I said yeah no problem what days are you going to play so he plays on like tuesday thursday friday sunday so all of a sudden i got this regular job one putter that turned into almost a full-time gig i didn't have to go to the draw anymore i built a great relationship with this person and now i still consider him a really good friend of mine and he's really helped me with business he's helped me get around those people that understand what works and what doesn't work and I love to just feed off of that. So if I didn't get up early that one day, I guarantee you my academy wouldn't be here. I guarantee you I wouldn't be offering opportunities for these kids, for my staff. So that to me is a dot day. Now, did I know that would occur? No, but something inside of me said go, and it paid off. But you just never know what moment, what day, but you can when you look back. And I could probably recognize six or seven major dot days in my life that led me up to here. And I think it's just all determinism. Yeah. Tony, one of the things that has impressed me about you is your academy donates 20% of net profits to help address a specific poverty program in South Africa. Can you talk a little bit about that, why you did that and how that works? That whole deal is run by Thurlow Hansen, and he's a great individual. He was an ex-firefighter, and uh, he retired 20 years ago, and he's done this out of his own pocket since then. So he sacrifices more than anybody I've known. And he's very impressive what he does for these kids. And these kids are usually in shantyvilles that don't really, they go to schools, but that's all they kind of can afford. And most of the schools down there in South Africa are either private or city. And you don't want to go to the, the city schools. So the parents are doing everything they can to send these kids to private to give them some good opportunity. But it's like taking all their money. So he puts everything out of his pocket and whatever donations he can get. So I just decided, you know, in memory of my mom, who passed away about six months ago, to uh, really, you know, hit home to me is to donate it back to Africa, you know, where I'm from, where she's from. My dad's from England, although he lived in Zimbabwe. But that really kind of hits home to me and also to Thurlow. And I wish it could be more, and it, it will be more. And the more we grow, the more they grow. And that's just basically what it's about. It's about money to give you a life, but we don't need excess. I don't understand how these people can make millions and millions, and yet they see somebody across half the size of their globe starving. It just doesn't make sense to me. And I know it's, you know, people say, well, you know, I worked hard for my stuff, but that's great. But I mean, how much do you really need? So that's, at least that allows my kids who are very fortunate in the academy, 
who are somewhat spoiled to being around golf to, to look and say, hey, look, there's a kid halfway around the globe that can't even afford shoes to play golf. We can't even afford the golf balls. I mean, here's, you know, how lucky are you? So it also changes their perception a bit too. Yeah. So I'll be sure, by the way, Tony, to include that link on the show notes section uh, of this episode. Maybe that'll do something. On a happier note, though, I see, you know, we have something in common that both of our wives are into watercolor artwork, and your wife specializes in hummingbirds. My wife's done a couple of those, but she does mostly flowers and, and other sorts of things. Do you want to give her a plug? Because she sells her stuff on Etsy, right? Yeah. You know, she, uh, I actually put it up there for her because she's very shy about her work, as most artists are. They don't want to kind of get their stuff out there. So H2O Creations is her shop, and it's Creations with a K. So if you feel like going down, they're all prints. It's pretty cheap. It's just to kind of spread whatever she can get out there. But I appreciate the opportunity for the for the plug. Yeah, I'll put that link on there also. And I did take a look at them. They're really nice. She does very nice work. Well, thank you. I'll let her know. Okay. Now you have a you mentioned guitar before. I don't know if you. It sounded like you play, but you also have a black belt in Taekwondo. Do you still do either or both of those things? Yeah, you know, I still have my guitar. My parents bought one for me when I was fifteen because I just wanted to play a Beatles song. And then I've, I learned that Beatles song, and I just kept going. I still don't know how to read. I play mostly by just by ear and plucking around. Uh, so I'm not that good, but I just enjoy it. It kind of soothes me a little bit. And then for martial arts, I did the, when I was a kid, about eight years old, I started karate. And then I took a break. And then when I came back to the States, because I was just smaller and I had a weird accent, people would pick on me. So I decided, you know what, I'm going back. <laughs> I'm going back. So then I went there for a good four to five years and got my black belt. I don't practice anymore. I just, my back and my joints just hurt too much. But the mentality of what was taught to me is still instilled. So that's just a discipline area, the, just the seeing things through. Now, obviously, as a human, we all have relapses. So it's not like I've been disciplined my entire life, but it's still in there. And that's what I try to at least pass down through golf to my kids. Yeah. Well, I hope at the very least you were able to beat up some bullies with using your Taekwondo skills. You know, I, I wish I could say I did. It's just like working out and getting bigger. They started to leave me alone. So I think it was okay. just a process of elimination. Okay. Now, you had mentioned in our correspondence about something to do with uh, San Diego's teaching program. Is that something you can or want to talk about? You know, I there is an opportunity, and we're not quite sure if we got it yet. There's 29 people that are putting in a bid to take over the, the city of San Diego. And I'm one of those people. And the cutoff was last week. So we don't know what's going to happen. Our best hopes are up there because if we do, that could be an incredible opportunity because it's at two very busy golf courses in a beautiful city that's year-round in golf. So it could be a great job creation opportunity. It could be a great growth of the game opportunity. It could help those golf courses kind of thrive and get back to where they need to be. So fingers crossed. But if it works out, it works out. If not, it's not meant to be. Okay. I wish you luck. So a couple more questions. You know, you clearly are a, a thoughtful person in terms of how you approach life and how and why you do things. Do you have a personal source of inspiration that you've used, whether it be a person or a book or tapes? I mean, what do you use to stay inspired? Oh, man. I just think, you know, I've done so many bad things in my life. And I, I always kind of remember those. Obviously, my mom is a big factor who's no longer with us my dad is still around he's a big factor my wife currently and she's just been the most amazing person towards me even though i have not been to her i've carried many issues in my body and i've carried a lot of negativity 
through things that have happened to me. And uh, I've just, you know, I've abused myself. I've, I was at one point, you know, drinking by myself on Christmas morning, living in the car for about a month, just doing nothing. So I haven't been very good to myself at some points in my life. And, you know, things are repairing, things are getting better. You know, I don't judge anybody for what they've done because who am I to judge? Because I've just been as bad to myself as most people. I've had a lot of addiction problems. So that's the type of thing that motivates me to not get back to that because I have a son now who I don't want to look at me and start to emulate how I was. I wanted to try and emulate how I want to be and just be a better person. And every day I just struggle. Some days are better than others, you know, especially with some losses in my life that I've just had. It's a lot easier to fall down that slippery slope. And I just look at my wife and my son and those right now, those two are the only things that kind of keep me floating. And then the rest of life takes care of itself. But honestly, I just don't want to go back to where I was. It's just, it's very depressing. Well, that's actually all of those trials and obstacles are probably your greatest source of wisdom. And I think it may be what separates you from, you know, the pack, you know, and people that have not had to face adversity and come up with the inner strength to overcome them. I think that's probably what makes you special. So how old is your son? He's going to turn four next week. Oh, okay. I hope you're teaching him golf. You know, he's... I take him to the golf course. He'd rather just play with his trucks in the in the bunker, and that's probably what I should do. I'm not that good anymore. Okay, listen, I have a son who had no interest and still has no interest in golf. So right. I think it's got to be something that they really attracted to, right? Without your prompting. My last question is: Do you have any advice for someone who's interested in pursuing any kind of career or building a business based on their love for the game? Um, I would say, having been through person that gets into the business working for $8 an hour and working a lot of hours, there is a good life to be had. It might take a while, especially with today's society, like especially with the golf pros around, they still have the understanding that you need to do your time before you can get rewarded. And typically in the golf business, that time is like 20 years. It takes a, it takes a long time. Because people don't leave. The pros don't leave. They're there for life. That's right. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, it depends because if they have an environment where they don't need to make a lot of money, you know, let's say they have a wife or a husband that makes three or four times as much as they do and they can support them, then that's, you know, there's no real drive to do anything. So they're happy. That's fine. For me, I had that, I didn't have that option. It's like, I've got a, that point where my son was being born, I had no job. So I had to figure something out really quick. So the drive of me having to support my son helped me as well. So it just depends on what you're looking for. My biggest advice is stay away from corporations. You know, it's just, just like most places. They'll just bleed you and bleed you. And then when you're finished, when you have nothing left, all right, sorry, we'll replace you with somebody that we can get for cheaper. So my biggest thing is do it yourself. Don't be afraid to make that, that commitment. You can do it. There's plenty of opportunities. If anybody has any questions or any ideas they need help with, they can always contact me, either LinkedIn or email me, either way. I'm more than happy to help people because I think it's needed. I think that, you know, entrepreneurship should be taught in high schools and colleges. Chess and entrepreneurship, that's the two things that should be mandatory. Yeah. Tony, this has been really uh, inspirational for me, and I'm sure that our listeners will enjoy hearing what you've had to say, and I really appreciate you being a guest. And uh, hopefully I can, if I'm out there in California, I have a son who lives in San Francisco, which is, he considers Los Angeles a different planet, but <laughs> right. who knows? I may be in your area one of these days, and I'd love to meet you in person. Absolutely. But I thank you. I'll continue to follow you on LinkedIn because I find you one of the most interesting voices on that platform. Uh, well, so, thank you very much. Well, thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to golfyeah.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com. 